Welcome to Modern Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Tomas Villanueva, Senior Principal for Operations and Quality at Vizient and Practicing Internist. Today, we're discussing the unique challenges of cardiac surgery, the risks to patients and the potential complications surrounding it, and issues in documenting it. Joining me as a return guest who will explain this in detail, Rachel Mack, RN. Rachel, welcome back to Modern Practice. Thanks for having me, Tom. So, Rachel, tell me about yourself and why you can really dive deep into cardiac surgery and documentation and coding when it comes to it. Yeah, of course, Tom. So my nursing background is CVICU and ICU. Uh, So when I worked there, I recovered fresh hearts from the OR. Also, my facility performed heart transplants when they were early on. So I think I have a little bit of a good opinion about this based on my nursing experience. But also, I've been reviewing these cases from a CDI and coding perspective for over 10 years now. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this discussion. So what makes cardiac surgery patients so unique? That is a great question, Tom, because they are completely different from other types of surgery because of the utilization of what's called cardiopulmonary bypass. Use of bypass, now not to be confused with the actual surgery they have, which is cabbage, but use of cardiopulmonary bypass really distinguishes cardiac surgery patients from other types of surgical patients and introduces some pretty potentially insane and unique complications. So cardiopulmonary bypass, CPB, for those of you that don't know what it is, this is a form of what's called extracorporeal circulation. What that mouthful means is a machine, and I'm dumbing this down for everybody because the thought of someone creating this and someone using it on a daily basis still makes my brain hurt, but this is a machine that removes blood from your body and non-medically speaking, turns and burns it so the surgeon can operate on a non-beating heart in a field largely devoid of blood. And then when they're done with you, they return that blood back to your body after the procedure is over. And again, to keep this high level, the fun way that I say this, uh, because their circulation is quite literally turned off and then turned back on again, these patients can develop very unique complications. And some of them have actually quite poor outcomes. Postoperatively, cardiac surgery patients require a lot of care and extensive hemodynamic monitoring. Typically, they are still intubated when they arrive to the ICU. As the years go by, this is changing a little bit. We're extubating some patients in the PACU, but for a lot of these patients who are super sick at their baseline, they're still intubated when they get to the ICU. They have continuous telemetry monitoring. They will have an arterial line. They may have a pulmonary artery catheter, also known as a Swan-Gans catheter, although those are kind of going out of style a little bit as well. They'll have a central line or a pick line, usually a central line pacing wires, one to four chest tubes, it's awful, a Foley catheter, a large vertical chest wound called a sternotomy, and then typically a calf or a leg or sometimes an arm wound, both of which are protected by dressings. So that's a lot in the post-op ICU space. So not only that, these patients are generally on quite a few drips postoperatively, quite a few IV medications. So even patients that are doing well doing great after surgery, they're still going to roll through the ICU door intubated and be on IV medications like anesthesia, typically things like propofol. They're going to be on continuous insulin and require Q1 hour blood glucose checks. Many of them, again, even those doing well, may be on low level, low dose vasopressors like Levofed, like dopamine, like epi, like vaso. Some patients may be on vasodilators like nitroglycerin, nitroprusside. They also may require antiarrhythmic medications like amiodarone or lidocaine. They also may require medications that either reduce 
or correct any delirium or altered mental status they are experiencing. So they may be on Presidex is a really common one, but they also may be, if they're really doing not well, Paldol or Ativan or something like that. So all of that being said, it should be pretty obvious. These patients are, again, even if they're doing great, 10 out of 10, they are quite ill when they arrive to the ICU. And in many institutions, they are one-to-one for nursing care, at least until they're extubated for those ICU nurses. Yeah, I'm rather looking forward to this conversation because you're absolutely right. Not only once they come from the ICU, once they're out of the ICU, myself as a hospitalist actually finds them challenging for the multiple reasons that we're going to speak about today. But more importantly, since this is a clinical documentation series podcast, the importance that we document our clinical truth moving forward, truly show all the emphasis and resources that were necessary in treating these patients. Absolutely, Tom. And the statement I'm going to say, obviously, is said tongue in cheek and with all of the love and kindness in the world, cardiac surgeons (laughs) aren't (laughs) the best documenters. Typically, once you show them data, once you show them their CC, MCC capture rates, their ODE ratios, things like that, they're very data-driven and they want to improve. A lot of them have nurse practitioners and PAs documenting for them, and usually those folks are awesome. But at their baseline, they provide quite limited uh, documentation. Also, I can mention the importance of co-management with your hospitalist may be helpful as well in reference to some of these documentation opportunities. Absolutely, especially with patients with a ton of those comorbid conditions at their baseline. Even if they're rolling through the door as an elective admission, if they've got CKD stage three, chronic systolic heart failure, diabetes, morbid obesity, hypertension, all the things, oh my goodness, please get a hospitalist on them um, the minute that they're done in the ICU, basically. So you just described a typical post-op cardiac surgery patient. What about patients who are not typical and really don't do well after surgery? What other treatment modalities could they require? And and to not only require, but more important that we need to document. Yes. So for our patients who really are not doing well postoperatively, either because they were so sick at their baseline with a ton of those comorbid conditions or just straight up because they're not doing well after surgery. One additional treatment modality, and many of you listening may have heard of this, is called an intra-aortic balloon pump. You will see this abbreviated IABP. We saw this frequently in the CVICU that I worked. This is for patients who go into cardiogenic shock. So talking about documentation, no one's going to have any issue documenting the fact that they put this patient on an intra-aortic balloon pump. That's well-documented. What needs to be documented is why you are doing this for the patient. Why are they requiring an IABP and another patient is not? And nine times out of 10, that diagnosis is going to be cardiogenic shock. So for those listening, if you don't know what an intraortic balloon pump is, it's a really nifty device. It's inserted through your groin, <laughs> goes up to your heart, and it inflates immediately after aortic valve closure and deflates right before that aortic valve opening. So what this is going to do, it's kind of a crazy cool device. This is going to result in decreased afterload for that patient, which will hopefully reduce their heart rate and increase that cardiac output, which can get really low again if they're crashing after surgery. Another post-operative therapy that some of our cardiac surgery patients may require is what's called either one of two things, continuous venovenous hemodialysis, which this is abbreviated in the ICU space, CVVHD, or continuous renal replacement therapy or CRRT. I'm not going to go into the differences between those for our podcast today, but this is for critically ill, unstable patients with cardiogenic acute renal failure. 
I hate to say with any level of CKD, but our patients specifically with that stage four, stage five, or that horrible end-stage renal disease, they are at very, very high risk of developing this postoperatively, unfortunately. And so for documentation, and this is my two cents, just tell us why the patient needs CBVHD or CRRT. Is it just their end-stage renal disease? Because that's fine and dandy. If that's what it is, that's okay. Please document it. But if they are a CKD stage four, stage fiver, and now they have an acute renal failure or an acute tubular necrosis, please make sure to document that. Another postoperative therapy some patients may need is what's called temporary cardiac pacing. If they experience any bradyarrhythmias, those are pretty straightforward. I don't typically see a ton of providers struggling to document why they needed to turn on a temporary cardiac pacing, but just if you can document as much detail as possible when it comes to those cardiac arrhythmias, that's what your CDI specialists and coders want. If it's AFib, say so. If it's permanent, if it's paroxysmal, say so. If it's a flutter, if it's VTAC, whatever the case may be that is leading them to need this temporary cardiac pacing. And then lastly, there is ECMO. This is the end of the road. I was going to say this is the end of the road for cardiac surgery patients. This is the end of the road for any patient. This is usually seen, particularly in the adult population, as a last resort for treatment. I will say, and we're not going to talk about pediatrics today, but ECMO can be very beneficial for some pediatric patients, and they can recover and do well after ECMO. Adults, uh, not so much. So ECMO, E-C-M-O, this stands for extracorporeal, and for that term already earlier, but extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. For the non-medical folks listening, this is a life support machine that sends, again, your blood. It's pumped outside of your body to a heart-lung machine. It removes that carbon dioxide and sends that oxygen-rich, hopefully, <laughs> oxygen-rich blood back to the body where they can then use it correctly. This has very, very low survival rates in the adult population, anywhere from 20 to 50%. And I would say that 20 to 50% would be on a good day, honestly. And the longer a patient requires ECMO, the higher likelihood they are going to expire during that stay. Basically, every hour that they stay on ECMO, they are more likely to die. I know many of us who are floor nurses, physicians, providers working on the floors during the pandemic, we saw that some of these COVID-19 patients were requiring ECMO. And actually, I was actually traveling during that time. Hospitals were running out of these machines. They did not have enough, even despite those bad outcomes. But I know a lot of you probably saw this. There's a lot of literature out there that states that this wasn't really a great treatment modality and it wasn't very successful. But again, at the end of the day, the end of the line, especially for these younger patients experiencing whatever they're experiencing, whether it be cardiac surgery, post-COVID, whatever. To me, this is basically a medical team's way of saying, look, we did everything that we could. We did every single life-saving measure and this patient still expired. But just know if you see these patients on ECMO, they're going to end up in a very high-weighted DRG. And again, just document, I hate to say document their downfall, but really we want to be documenting why they are deteriorating and those medical conditions that are leading to that. Rachel, great discussion. On the next episode, we'll continue with steps we can take to remedy these challenges. And to our listeners, you can contact Rachel at her email address in the research section of our podcast page. And if you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice or simply want to send us your comments, please contact me at our email, modernpracticepodcast at visiantinc.com. We've posted a link in our resource section as well. And please join us for other Modern Practice Podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, or send us your comments. And now I'm Dr. Tomas Villanueva. Thank you so much for listening.